Our lesson today is from Luke 18, starting with verse 1 and going to verse 8. Luke 18. Then Jesus told them a parable about their need to pray always and not to lose heart. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor had respect for people. In that city there was a widow who kept coming to him and saying, Grant me justice against my opponent. For a while he refused, but later he said to himself, Though I have no fear of God and no respect for anyone, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will grant her justice so that she may not wear me out by continually coming. And the Lord said, Listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God grant justice to his chosen ones who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long in helping them? I tell you, he will grant quickly, he will quickly grant justice to them. And yet, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would uh, grace the words that we hear today. Uh, and that your scriptures would speak to us so that we might be renewed in our discipleship, so that we might learn better what it means to follow your Son. Amen. Uh, Several months ago, I was having a problem with AT&T. There was a utility pole that went down in my yard, and this is an old pole, and it had a you know, a wire that didn't seem to, to do much that was draped through a, a tree and was going across the property and was hanging pretty low. And, the, you know, I had the pole down there in part of the yard. And uh, first I called Tom Bigby Electric and got them to come look at it. And they said it wasn't theirs and call AT&T. So I call AT&T and they said, okay, uh, well, you're not an AT&T customer. And I said, well, uh, it doesn't matter. Your pole is in my yard. Please come and get it. And so I Cajoled the, you know, I said, y'all need to come take care of this. I said, okay, we'll come. So they come and they look at it and they say, oh, well, we need some more stuff to move this. We'll be back uh, tomorrow at this time. Tomorrow at that time, they did not come. So I call again and I say, there is a pole in my yard. Please remove it along with its line. And they said, okay, we will come uh, at this time. And they came and they said, oh, uh, we can't move that. We need some other stuff to, uh, to move it. And I said, you told me that last time. Please get this out of my yard. Uh, And so they said, all right, we'll come back again at this time. And they don't show up at that other time. I call them once again, and they still can't get it right. So finally, I get on Twitter. And if you don't know what Twitter is, bless you. That's a fantastic thing. I'm I'm happy for you. Uh, But, you know, I got on Twitter, and I I sent a message to AT&T with a picture of the pole and and the wire hanging low through the tree in my yard. And I said, why, after six, seven calls or whatever it was, is this pole still in my yard? And lo and behold, that very day, I get a call from the quote-unquote presidential office, which I'm sure is just their, you know, way of of handling the people who gripe the most. And uh, they come, and the pole is removed, and the wire is removed, and it's a happy day uh, there at Lily Farms North Branch. And so uh, I basically annoyed AT&T until they did the right thing. And the story that Jesus tells today is very 
It's a very strange story because Jesus seems to be saying that we can annoy God until God uh, brings us justice. That we can pray and pray and pray and pester God and pester God and pester God until he, like an unjust judge, does what we call him to do. And so, so God is compared with, or really, and I think we'll talk about this, I think actually more contrasted with this unjust judge and that God will hear us when we pray to him if we, um, and, and Jesus calls us to be persistent in our prayers, to come again and again and again, to pray and not lose heart. But yet, but yet, I think a lot of us struggle with prayer and a lot of us haven't had the experience that I think some folks think they should have where we ask God for something and God makes that happen. And a lot of us have prayed for uh, a child or a parent or a family mem- another family member or a friend who doesn't want to seem to have anything to do with God that they might start uh, having something to do with God. And we've prayed and we've prayed and we've prayed for that person and yet they don't seem to want to uh, be a part of what God is doing. And a lot of us have experienced trial and temptation in our life uh, and perhaps even a sin that we struggle with. And we've prayed to God to take that temptation away, to take it away, take it away. And we've prayed and we've prayed and we've prayed, and yet it's still there. And Paul even seems to have experienced that himself. He says that he prayed for God to take away this thorn that's in his side three times, and yet there it still was. And he says that God's power was made perfect in his weakness. And even if you haven't experienced either of those things, I think almost everybody has experienced this. You have a friend or a family member who's dying, and it seems like uh, it's too early. And you pray, and you pray, and you pray, and you want that person to live, and yet they die. And we know somewhere deep in our core that things aren't like they should be. We want justice, and we're calling for God to come and make things right. And you know, it might even, um, we might even, that is, start to ask ourselves, well, if we pray and pray and pray, and it seems like God's going to do what God wants to do, uh, then what's the point? Why do we pray? What are we even doing? I think Jesus tells this story precisely because people have had this experience in prayer. Jesus doesn't tell the story to simply say, well, you need to pray more, and that's the problem. The problem's with you, you need to pray more. Uh, And if you only prayed more, you'd get exactly what you wanted, and and your lack of faith is keeping you from uh, having what you need. I don't think that's what Jesus is saying. I think the very opposite is true. I think Jesus is saying that he knows how we pray, and it's easy to lose heart because it doesn't seem like what we want to happen is happening. And in fact, I think Jesus had that experience himself in the garden in the night before he died. He prayed and he prayed and he prayed. He prayed to the point where he was sweating so much that he bled that the cup would pass from him, that what was about to happen wouldn't have to happen, but yet it did. And so I think Jesus tells this parable because he is telling us he knows how hard it is to pray sometimes, and yet we should keep on doing it. You know, this isn't a story about uh, just getting what we ask for. This is a story about God's faithfulness to uh, our relationship, 
his faithfulness to us. This isn't a story about building the kingdom of God or even getting our place in heaven or even uh, securing exactly what we want in this life by praying enough. That puts ourselves on top instead of God on top. It is rather a story about making ourselves ready for what God is going to do. And this isn't a story about uh, a moralistic sort of lesson about you need to pray X number of times with you know, this amount of quantity and this amount of quality and God will respond. This is, on the other hand, a story about God's faithfulness and what it means for us to be faithful in response to the God who is faithful. So let's look at this, this widow. This widow tells us some, I think, very interesting things about what it means for us to be disciples, about our persistence, our keeping at prayer, our praying and not losing heart. You know, widows, on the one hand, are, are usually assumed to be uh, poor and marginalized. It was common, though it didn't happen all the time, but it was common that widows wouldn't inherit property in that day, that it would pass to a son or it would pass to a brother and that they wouldn't enjoy rights of inheritance. And there are exceptions to that. But oftentimes, widows were poor, and they were without the kind of relationships that might have you know, sustained them and brought them justice and brought them you know, the resources that they need. And in the early church, there was a lot of care taken for widows and orphans, people who were poor and didn't have anyone to advocate on their behalf. So on the one hand, this woman is uh, poor, and it seems that someone is doing wrong by her. She has an opponent. She has someone uh, that she is taking to court that she needs justice from. So it seems that this woman is weak and needy, uh, that she has things that she needs that aren't being given to her. But yet, but yet, the widow's a little more complicated than that. Because even though she's weak and needy, she's also strong in her own way. She goes to the judge again and again. She advocates on her own behalf. She's not afraid to stand up for herself. She says, this is what I need. My uh, oppressors are against me. My opponent is over here, and I need justice. And so she goes to the judge and asks for justice. And not only does she go once, she goes again and again and again. This doesn't sound like a weak person to me. This sounds like a very strong person. This sounds like a person who knows what needs to be done, and she's doing what she needs to do to make sure that it gets done. So yes, she's needy. Yes, she has an opponent. But on the other hand, she's ready to stand up for herself. So she's not just weak, she's also strong. And in fact, the way it's presented, the judge will say, uh, you know, this woman, this widow keeps bothering me, and because of that, I'll grant her justice so that she may not wear me out by continually coming. And one interpretation of that I read said that, that the wear me out by continually coming to me is actually a term or phrase that's taken from the world of boxing. And that the idea is that you know the person keeps coming and, and punching you in the eye and punching you in the eye and punching you in the eye, and finally says, you're tired of it, and they've bloodied you. So this woman is, is perhaps presented as punching this judge in the nose, metaphorically. And this is a strong person. This is a strong woman. And I think that tells us a little something about what God expects when we pray. Because on the one hand, we come to God utterly needy. I mean, our very lives depend on God. We wouldn't exist if it weren't for God. And so when we come to God, we are completely dependent on God. But on the other hand, 
On the other hand, God has also made us in his image. Go back to Genesis 1. God makes humanity in his image. And he sets them over the earth to govern it and to to rule over it. And so that means that God has granted humanity a little bit of uh, his wisdom and discernment, the humanity's ability to make decisions, to figure out what's going on, so that they might take what's going on in the world and reflect that back to God. And that through us, the world might see a something, of something of what God is like. So while we are needy, while we're completely dependent on God and our very lives depend on him, on the other hand, God has made us not to be weak, but to be strong, to be a reflection of who he is. We don't always live up to that, but that's what we're created to be. And so when we pray, when we pray, Yes, we come to God utterly needy. We come to God utterly helpless. But God, through his grace, has also made it where we can come to God with confidence because he has made us to come to him with confidence. He has made us to have a relationship with him. He's made us to talk to him face-to-face as he did in the story with Adam and Eve. He has made us so that we might um, figure out What's wrong in the world? And we might say to God, this is wrong. Come and fix this. That's how God has made humanity. And it's how God has made us. We're utterly weak, but also at the same time, we can be confident when we approach God. We are weak, but we are strong at the same time. It's a paradox, and it's hard to see how both of those things can be true, but I think it is. So that's the widow, and and perhaps a lesson about what it means for us to be persistent in our prayers, and coming to God both with need and with confidence. The judge here, the judge here is, a, is an odd little character as well. The judge says of himself, the narrator of Jesus says it, and then the judge says of himself that he fears neither God nor man. Uh, and this judge is presented as sort of the exact opposite of what a judge is supposed to be. The judge is supposed to be the one who brings justice, who figures out what's going on and does what's needed. The judge is supposed to be impartial. And God is presented throughout uh, the Psalms and through much of the Old Testament and New Testament as being a God who is the just judge, who will bring, who will do what needs to be done so that people get what they deserve, so that the world gets what it needs. But this judge isn't like that. This judge, uh, this judge is really only interested in his own leisure. Uh, he fears neither God nor man. He only gives in to this widow's request basically because she has annoyed him into it. And I think what Jesus is saying here is not, of course, that uh, God is unjust like the, the unjust judge. Remember, we talked about the parable of the dishonest manager last week, and Jesus wasn't commending the dishonesty. And in the same way, Jesus isn't commending the injustice of the judge. But what he's saying is that if you can expect justice in a small way, even from a a judge who's unjust, how much more can you expect justice from the God who is just? Well, there's more to this than just sort of the reversal, the reversal of this image of the bad judge, uh, the just God in contrast to the unjust judge. Because Jesus is saying something here about how God operates. And God operates in relationship with the people 
that he's made. You know, all, all through Scripture, God chooses to work with people. You know, God's God. God could stay on his own. God didn't even have to make humanity. God could have left us doing whatever we wanted to do, but yet God chooses to work with us. God chooses to have a relationship with us. That's the whole story of Israel through the Old Testament. It's how God has chosen a people to work with so that everyone might enjoy God's blessings. Uh, And so that there is a two-way street with God. God has a relationship with us where he reciprocates, where he responds, where God is engaged with us. We're not made, and God doesn't operate just by sort of floating out there somewhere and having authority and sort of sending down thunderbolts and zapping people and making this happen and making that happen and just sort of engineering the whole thing. But God works by working with us and responding to us. And we see that most of all in Jesus himself because we say that Jesus is fully God and fully human. Jesus is God in the flesh. And God presents himself right there in front of the eyes of human beings so that they can ask him questions, so that they can walk around with him through Galilee and Judea, so that they can share a meal with him, and so that they might see him face to face. God chooses to work with the people that he's made. And so God has designed us for relationship with him. And we shouldn't expect that God simply operates from afar and doesn't respond to us and just does what God wants. There's, you've probably heard before, some people will say that, you know, prayer isn't about changing God, prayer is about changing us. And I think that's true in a way. I think prayer is about changing us, and I find that the more I pray, the more I change. So I think that there's a great deal of validity to that. But Scripture also presents God as responding to our prayers. It doesn't always respond in the way that we would want, but God is presented as um, allowing us to uh, prevail upon Him, to ask Him for things. So that He, and that's what makes for a genuine relationship. If I just ask you for something and you do what you want to do anyway, that's not much of a relationship. Uh, But God is in a two way relationship with us. And that doesn't mean that God isn't ultimately in control. And that God isn't ultimately going to bring justice. But it means that the way that God has, is going to bring justice is through the people that he's made. And through showing up himself as his son. The promises that God makes to hear our prayers and to bring us justice, we see that most fully lived out by God himself on the cross. Because the way that God answers our prayer isn't simply like manifesting something and making it happen. It's by coming and living with us and then dying and then rising again and then promising to return so that one day the justice that this widow calls for and the justice that we call for might finally come when he returns. And indeed, it has already started to come because of God himself with us. I love this last line in verse 8. I tell you, I tell you. Actually, let's back up to verse 7. And will not God grant justice to his chosen ones who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long in helping them? I tell you, he will quickly grant justice to them. And yet, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Well, when does the Son of Man come? 
Well, Son of Man, we've talked about this before, is Jesus. And yes, Jesus will return again, but he's standing right there. The Son of Man is standing right there telling this story. And so God is asking, are you going to be faithful to me as I have been faithful to you? I've proven myself faithful by being there for you right in front of your eyes. Will you be faithful to me in return by coming to me with what you need, by asking and praying and being a part of what I'm doing? The question that Jesus asks here at the end is, God is, it's Jesus, God is faithful, what about you? God is faithful, what about you? And you know, this can take a lot of different shapes. Um, but I think sometimes we struggle with that because oftentimes people get angry with God because it doesn't seem like they're getting what they need and deserve and uh, that, that wrong things are happening. And there's two responses that we can take when that happens. One path is to simply stay angry with God and say, well, it doesn't seem like it's worth annoying God with this stuff, so I'm going to leave God alone, and I expect God to leave me alone. And we, we decide we're going to have nothing to do with God. And we all, maybe we've done that in our own lives at some point. Uh, even, I think most Christians have done that at some point, and certainly uh, many folks who uh, aren't a part of the church, that's exactly what they say. You know, God doesn't seem to, to care, and so why should I care? The other thing that we can do, though, is this. And that is to come again and again and again with what we need. To ask God again and again and again. Even when we have questions about God and say, why is this happening and why is this happening? And we ask why and why and why. You know, your kids probably have gone through that phase where, uh, you know, they turn, I don't know, three or four, whenever this happens. It hasn't happened with Emmeline yet, but I'm sure it's coming. Where they start to ask why. Say, why, you know, why is this? Why, 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 why? And they just, why you to death? And you want to say, uh, just because I said so, go away. And you might have to do that because you have to parent and you have responsibilities. I'm not saying that's a bad response. Sometimes that's a good response. Uh, and I'm sure I'm going to do that too. Uh, so that's a perfectly appropriate thing for a parent to say. But why does, the, why does the child ask you why? It isn't because they don't trust you. It's because they do trust you. It's because you're the one who can give them the answers. It's because you're the one who uh, seems to be in charge of their whole world. And they know that they have a relationship with you that they can trust you. That's why kids ask why. It's part of how they learn and grow with confidence that you're there for them, uh, even when they seem to be pestering you to death. And in the same way, God wants us to ask him why. All through the Psalms, all through our own scriptures and, and Israel's scriptures, people ask God why. Why is this happening? Why aren't you doing this? Why, why, why? What's going on here, God? Why don't you come and bring us justice? And God seems to endorse that. God wants us to ask him why. And when we're confused and when we have doubts and even when we're angry, God wants us to bring that to him again and again and again and not lose heart. That's, that's what this passage is about. Uh, Paul, the Apostle Paul, put it this way in Romans 8. And I would love to just wake up every morning and read, call you all on the phone and just read Romans 8 to you every day. Because uh, that'd be great. We can't do that. So this is just a short part of Romans 8. Um, Paul puts it, puts it like this. 
I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory about to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the children of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but by the will of the one who subjected it, and hoped that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning in labor pains until now. And not only the whole creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly while we wait for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. For in hope we are saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what is seen? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do, not know, we do not know how to pray as we ought, but the very Spirit intercedes with sighs too, word, too deep for words. And God, who searches the heart, knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. I think what Jesus is saying here, and I think what Paul is saying there, is that God is with us when we pray. And even when... That doesn't look like we want it to look. That doesn't mean that God isn't being faithful to us. And that when we look at what Christ has done on the cross and in his resurrection and ascension, we know that we can rely on God. We can hope in God, and that hope will not disappoint us. And even if that doesn't look exactly like we want it to look, that we know that the way that God sees things is infinitely superior to the way that we see them, and that God can be counted upon to come and bring the justice that this widow wants, that we want, and that the whole world needs. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.